Hello and welcome to another edition of the Capiche Filmcast. Stephen Barry here for another thrilling, tantalising episode of the Bond Daft Project. Ranking Bond continues. Today we are here for one of my favourite categories, Best Villains. And here to discuss the bastards of the Bond franchise, those mega maniacal fanaticists and drug dealers, kingpins, all of that type, are two of my Bond aficionados. Commander Gordon Webster. Good afternoon, Mr. Barry. And Steve McCall. A very good afternoon to you both. Good afternoon. I feel bad actually not giving you some title, actually. Like, uh, But to be fair, it's Gordon's birthday, uh, so he can get the title today. He can have Commander. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Happy birthday, Gordon, uh, officially from the Capiche podcast. And yep, another day older. What better way to celebrate than to discuss the villains of the franchise? I'm sure you agree on that. Yeah, this is yeah. A, yeah, a fun one, Gordon. Um I'm sure. Uh, unfortunately, Fran is not here for this one, uh, so it's just the three of us. This is the worst villains we are discussing today. Uh, so we are here to discuss the worst villains of the franchise. Um, sure, there is a few. Most of them all, I feel, are great, and uh, you know, but there's obviously ones that we don't feel made the cut. And yeah, we're going to discuss them today. Uh, I've got a list here of all the villains, and we're going to sort of nominate the ones we feel are the the weakest of the bunch, um, say three each or something, three, five at the most each, and then we'll talk about them and try and get to a collective decision on a winner or loser in this case, and two runners-up. So for this category, we are doing the worst villains, and then we'll do a separate uh, podcast after this one for the best villains. Righty, guys, let's get the, the list up here. I'm going to read through these. And we can then try and get to our chosen uh, worst villains. So, obviously, Dr. No, Rosa Klebb, Goldfinger, Largo, Blofeld, played by Donald Pleasance, then Blofeld, played by Telly Savalas, Blofeld by Charles Gray, and Mr. Big slash Kananga, Scaramanga, Strongberg, Drax, Kristatos, Kamal Khan, Max Zorin, We've got Whitaker and Kosko from The uh, Living Daylight, Sanchez from License to Kill, Trevelyan, Elliot Carver, Electra King and Renard from The World Is Not Enough, Gustav Graves uh, from Die Another Day, and Le Chiffre, Dominic Green, Raul Silva, and finally Blofeld, Christoph Waltz's version from Spectre. These are our main supervillains of the franchise. Steve... I'll let you start by highlighting a few you feel are nominated for this discussion of the worst villains of the franchise. Cool. So the one I'm going to start with, we're going to go Pierce Brosnan era. We're going to go Tomorrow Never Dies and Elliot Carver. Okay, okay. Uh, which you may remember me complaining about um, during the film. I just honestly, his... To kind of sum it up, he brings the entire world to the brink of nuclear war because he didn't get broadcasting rights for his news channel in China. Yeah. That, for me, is just... ah. It's kind of a Trumpian feel to that. <laughs> it really is. I mean, there are there are some terrible villains, but that just kind of takes a biscuit. And he's just... He's not... From a villain, I think... For a, a villain, you kind of... I suppose first you want someone, someone big, someone who'll put up a fight. I don't like how he also he takes he doesn't 
he's there are some villains as we've established who um kind of take a front they kind of they stand on the front line they will do everything they don't leave everything to their henchmen and their people um they kind of get in about doing stuff and the sort of proactive villains if you like from what i remember elliot carver just is a sort of weak ass businessman who kind of stands in the back and gets everyone else to do his dirty work and i just i kind of feel that he as a a villain he was an attempt by the writers i suppose to kind of capture the zeitgeist at the time they kind of went okay what is modern and potentially evil 24-hour news let's take that idea and base a villain around that and i can see what they were trying to do it just it doesn't age particularly well you look back at it now and you go that's really i mean i can see what they were trying to do they were obviously kind of trying to take a a punt at people like robert maxwell and rupert murdoch and um those types and make them out to be really really evil when actually they're just rich old dicks generally okay okay yeah and also he's just he's a bit there's there's a few moments with him that are a bit um I mean, for sort of the, that dodgy one-handed typing that he does when he's talking to his, his editors, <laughs> this weird, he, sort of, he types by kind of flailing his hand over a keyboard, which is kind of impossible to do. And, and he's not even dodgy, looking at it? Uh. No, exactly. He just, yeah, kind of hand up and sort of, yeah, I, I, it just it looks weird. Hmm. And also there's a really horrible bit where he does this sort of weird sort of taking the piss out of Wei Lin by doing this sort of almost sort of kung fu type like yeah as though you were trying to take the piss out of someone from china by doing a sort of racist I, act I, type thing. i did think that i mean that was always that was actually um his improvisation as well that wasn't even written in the script but, really yeah so, he, brought, so he brought strange, that to, he brought that to, i remember thinking that i was like is that yeah it doesn't he doesn't necessarily make it a race thing but it, it does seem it's you know, I mean, I suppose he's a villain. I mean, yeah, maybe, but yeah, still at the same time, it's a wee bit, bit strange, isn't it? Yeah, Very it strange. didn't look particularly good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one. Uh, and the other one I'm going to nominate is, I think, one that's going to be a popular choice in this category, and that's Gustav Graves <laughs> from Die Another Day. Yeah. Uh, which I won't go into too much because I've got a feeling that other people are going to want to um, air their grievances about him as well. But I just found him annoying and smug. He's not what you want from a, a Bond villain. You kind of want to watch and almost have a little bit of respect for because they've got some big plan that they're carrying out or they're a big fighter or they're kind of intelligent. But Gustav Graves was like a, it was almost like an evil Batman, just a sort of rich guy with lots of kind of um, stuff at his disposal. Mm-hmm. Um and also the kind of bizarre plotline about him previously being Colonel Moon, but altering his DNA to become Gustav Graves was a little bit daft. Yep. Yep. I completely agree. Uh, any more? That's my two. Okay. Gordon, I'll let you do the honours. Okay. So, let me see. I'm going to go for 1971's Diamonds Are Forever. <laughs> Ernst Stavro Blofeld played with Charles Gray. Making mud pies, 007. <laughs> he's the he's the um, my least favorite um, incarnation of Blofeld. Obviously played by several different actors, and I'll go into the reasons for that um, later on. I would also uh, I'm just looking down our list here because I was going to mention Gustav Graves. I forgot um, Orlov if he counts. Um, he the could octopus count, yeah. like because we've got the two for like the living daylights. Uh... General, was it General Orlov? 
Um, I'll write them in. Just... Yeah, General Orlov. Um, I'm going to go 2012's Skyfall Rattle Silver. Wow. Okay. Didn't see that one coming. I know you weren't fan, to be fair. I shouldn't be surprised, but... Yeah, I just thought I'll... I'll get. I'll bring in a controversial one because I. I feel there's a few we've got in common here. Obviously, Graves and yeah. I suspect possibly this Blofeld. Everyone's got their different Blofeld. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. Like I said, I don't know if John Hollis's Blofeld is is quite in the film for long enough or significant enough in your eyes only. But yeah, that's that's my two, Steve. Okay. Uh. Yeah. I don't have many to bring to this either. Um. I the the sort of I would say two of mine would have been the Charles Gray and Gustav Graves. The other one I'm going to nominate is the another Blofeld performance. It's Telly Savalas's. Uh, I just don't feel that it worked as well. I mean, it's partly to do with the end sort of third uh, and the sort of action scenes when these Bond and him are in a bobsled battle and, and all these kind of things. I, but I also just don't feel there was a chemistry really between the two considering what you know what had happened in the previous film you only have twice um so that from a continuity point of view it kind of didn't make quite a lot of sense but also just don't didn't get the same menace from savalas as donald pleasance it, it partly to do with the look of the character uh the the weird kind of cut ear thing i i, I didn't know what the what the sort of purpose of it was i just i don't know um but yeah, Savalas didn't. I don't know. He didn't didn't have the menace. I think that is partly on his performance for me or casting. Even I don't know if he was right for the part. Yeah, I don't think there's any others that I really need to to highlight uh, as 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 the worst. I can see a, f- a few that have just missed it. Renard, you could argue, isn't great. I think the storyline with the bullet in the head, all that kind of stuff. Um, isn't fantastic, but when you've got someone with an intensity like Robert Carlyle, that all that just pulls it up above. If it was any other actor, there's a good chance he would have been in my worst. But there's something about Robert Carlyle that pulled that above the the sort of worst category into kind of a mediocre, a flawed villain. Obviously, it was a power couple as well, which I kind of liked. There wasn't one clear main villain. I would argue that it is actually Electric King. Um, Renard obviously got the final death. As if he was the final villain, but to me, um, but he's not. He doesn't make the cut. So the rest all fall into a kind of fantastic or flawed or average. So yeah, we've got five highlighted. Um, let's try and get a winner and the two runners up. So essentially, we just need to cut two of these to get to our our final three. For me, Silva is the one that that that's one I would cut. But I'm certainly intrigued on your. On your on why you've chosen him, Gordon. Uh, if you want to try and make that case, yeah, it comes back to my my previous reasons doing the Skyfall podcast, Steve. I don't think he plays the character seriously for a minute, at least not till the end of the film. I feel like, um, and you know, I like Javi Bardem. I remember seeing No Country for Old Men, probably not long after it came out, and you know, really like him in that. But it's. First of all, the the whole thing about a, a double O agent going rogue that that had already been done before. That wasn't original. That had been done so much before, done so much better with Alex Trevelyan, and it's it's mostly down the. I think I mean, like I said, the the things I like about about Ralph Silva is he looks quite 
he makes you feel uncomfortable. I think the key qualities to be a good Bond villain, they need to make us as viewers feel uncomfortable and they need to feel dangerous. And I think he feels dangerous and he looks dangerous. It's probably, there's bits like later on in the film, I think he becomes, um, he starts to go in decline a little bit. I think, first of all, it was mentioned in our Skyfall podcast, he just, he seems to just, he has the ability to, it's almost as if he can teleport, he can just get out of, any situation really, really quickly. Like that. I mean, I don't know how he could get out of that MI6 cell. There's no real explanation for that. It's just like one second the the, the MI6 staff look and all the guards are dead. And he's gone. Like he seems to have the ability to just to just um, pull things out of the sky. You know, it's like how um, in the how he, he's able to make these cyber attacks just ha- happen with a click of his finger. He seems almost too powerful. If you know, what I mean, there's no explanation given. To, he seems to just have this invincibility is and then of course the whole i don't really like the subway chase with him and and daniel craig's bond especially when he's standing he's standing this is really kind of cartoon like bond finally confronts him in some room in the underground tunnels and and bond says something to him and it's just like oh but that this this will or something it's like he clicks his fingers and I, I, just out of nowhere a subway train comes crashing through the roof i mean that you know that's like that's making him seem like the early Joker at Batman, you know? Yeah. There's a, there's the, I can't take him seriously running around in a police uniform. And I think it's he just he's a bit too gung-ho the way he just... See, I think Bond, the best Bond villains were... They, they were clever the way that they could um, control things. They could be controlling in the background without you seeing them. But it's, it's kind of a bit too gung-ho for me, the way him and his men just like storm into the courtroom when... You've got you've got like M. There's the big sort of core about the future of MI6. It just sort of bursting in. It's a bit too hands on. It's a bit too gung ho for me. And then again, when they go to the house Skyfall later on, it's a bit too. It's there's something to be said for villains that actually do involve themselves. You know, he's looking like a proper henchman. He's he's big jacket and a gun in his hands, which that's fine. But it's it's like he's just straight to it, just sort of chasing after Bond. And then Bond chasing him, it, it's it's a bit it's a bit too much. It reminds me of the Dark Knight, the actual the Joker performance. It's that kind of off kilter, weird darkness of a character like the Joker, who is a main big bad, uh, and obviously yeah. the Batman legacy. But he was doing things on his own. He was being the one on the, the sort of heist at the beginning of the film. He was doing things the shooting and all these kind of things um and having this plot around him that he's clearly somehow orchestrated that every single piece had to fall exactly in place for that he's orchestrated yeah. for it to make sense in the plot and that's what happens yeah. with silver like it, the little things like the timing of when um what is it the access code or whatever it is and in, in, in the mi6 and and the cell that he's put in and he's kind of somehow yeah. pre-thought about all of this for any sense for this to make and, and that's what it pulls me out but the that film was trying to harken back a little to the zaniness or the comedic element of the earlier films especially the moore films possibly with a modern sensibility so maybe that's what they've tried to to kind of you know, maybe you're not meant to think about it. Maybe it's like Live and Let Die, and and that sort of like, you know, the the unexplained weirdness that that film had. That you know, that maybe that Silva, this the stuff around Silva has. So, I mean, yeah, I can see why it wouldn't. He is, I suppose, the most hands-on villain we've seen. 
out of all of these, he is doing things that the henchmen would previously have done. But then yeah. it makes sense maybe for Silva in the sense that he was an agent. So maybe we should see him doing things that the agent version of him would do to give it believability. Well, I'm just going to say it's done well. Um, that You mentioned about the, when he's in the, the MI6, uh, that it's like the most kind of high-tech, secure cell anyone could ever be in. And I think you, actually you do see see Bardem really act when he's he's given that kind of emotional scene about how Emma abandoned him. But it's like, after that, it just becomes all too easy for him to get out of there. Like you said, it's all sort of pre-orchestrated. And I'll just... I just feel like like Javier Bardem is it's like is and it's similar to maybe Charles Gray's Blofeld. He, he's a villain who's trying to sound like a Bond villain. Mm. If that if that makes sense, you know, he's trying too hard to to rather than just playing the character to play a Bond villain, and he's just he's too invincible. He's too he he seems to have the just the natural ability to to conjure anything he wants out of nowhere. Yeah, interesting. Steve, do you have what's your thoughts on Silva? Yeah, I think he is just let down by some daft writing because I completely agree about him escaping from the supposedly high-tech secure cell and the whole chase on the subway where he's dressed as a police officer was daft. But what I keep coming back to is that scene on the island where he's captured Bond and you kind of see him entering and then he effectively tries to throw bonds off by almost coming on to him and being really creepy towards him that scene i thought because we'd never really seen a villain do that before i that's kind of what i come what i try and anyway, to come back to when i think of um silver yeah because that scene i thought was fantastic that almost uh that almost redeems him yep I would but when you balance yeah. that i suppose against the uh the incompetency a lot of the police incompetency, the bad guy incompetency that we've talked about in films before, a lot of that came back in Skyfall with regards to him, because he did, he slipped through the net far too easily, and the way that he's supposed to have set things up it's, I mean, it was, it's daft writing that's all, unfortunately, yeah. but he's, there was enough in the previous scenes I think to potentially pull it back for him. I kind of agree with you, that's actually I remember seeing it in cinema, and the thing I always remembered about him was that weirdness uh his introduction that long shot of him as he slowly walks into frame into the kind of into the center of the screen speaking and things like that um and the way that obviously he murders he shoots the the girl that's chained you know there's a, there was a, such a serious coldness he was a menace and uh yeah that always had a kind of lasting impact on me that the other stuff the slightly zany stuff the sort of kind of wasn't as um, kind of, it didn't do as much of a detriment. I still actually found him. I think he tapped into something different that other characters haven't done, and that's maybe something to almost applaud in a way. Considering this is a franchise at that point, it was twenty third film. It is hard to find a kind of new spin on the main villain character. Uh, you know, you kind of always have to think about what the others have been. If you want to fit in, you kind of have to then do what they did before. And I think he tried something different. I mostly would give him... I kind of like him for that. Um, but I also see definitely he was let down by some of the writing around him. It's definitely the writing the, the around that, the, the action scene around him, placing him in certain places and his general plan was ridiculous. But he was perhaps. On, uh, I wouldn't put it on him as the villain himself. If you know what I mean. Was he perhaps a reaction to Dominic Green in that way, Steve? You know, you're talking about like the sort of modern um, taking the Bond villain because I think 
I think it's acknowledged by a lot of um, critics that maybe Dominic Green, the previous film, wasn't um, was a bit too underwhelming. Yeah, a bit too smaller than life. You know what I mean? I think so maybe they tried to um, they tried to kind of get Silvermore to be along the lines of classic Bond villain. I think so. I think that's what they've tried, and obviously they've they've succeeded in certain ways, and maybe not in other ways, but. I would, for me, it doesn't make the cut. I know you do feel that way. Um, let's let's talk about some of the. Is there? I feel like there's a couple here that, by they're so bad in a way or whatever that we can all agree they actually are lock-ins. Let's look at Gustav Graves from Die Another Day, and see if we can lock him in. Do we feel that he is one of the three that are locked in? I think he has to be. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I think so. There's there's some early promise with Graves, like the, the, in the same way there's, there's early promise with a lot of that film. But seeing him getting his big sort of Robocop Iron Man type suit at the ends is a big sort of invincibility suit. He presses a button, he can just electrocute things and somehow not actually be hurt himself while he's doing it. And it's just because you're actually, again, you're taking a good actor and not letting him act. You're letting him become the victim of CGI and the victim of bad screenwriting. Because yeah. I do have a lot of time for... I've got a lot of time for all these actors. I've got a lot of time for Toby Stevens. He could have been used so much better. They should have... The, the original screenplay was to go along the lines of the Moonraker novel, having having him being this, um, this millionaire that came out of nowhere. Why couldn't they just have had that just you know just have toby stevens playing gustav graves why did he also have to be colonel moon it made absolutely no <sighs> colonel moon could have been in there and then just you know died early in the film and then bonds up against graves yeah yeah completely it's the same as so much of that film that's just is like there's promise you know like, the likes of zao it's like why did they have to shave all his hair off and make him look albino and still have diamonds encrusted in his face why not just leave he looked i think um rick yoon looked really he looked like a real tough Bond henchman. He looked—I think he looked great. And it's just, why did they have to like kind of make him look all weird the second half of that film? Yeah, yeah, I think he is definitely a lock-in. Uh, you've summed it up pretty well. Um, one of the worst, just the extremes they go to to try and be over the top in that film, and he exemplifies it completely. Yeah. Yep. I would say locked in then as one of the the other three. Uh, I feel like the other main obvious lock in is the Blofeld Charles Gray performance. Uh, uh, Gordon, you nominated him. Steve, what do you feel about that as a lock in? Do you feel it would be? Just so I've got the right one. That's the Diamonds of Forever one, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, thought so. Uh, yeah, I actually agree with that because that entire entire film was daft, and it was it was. It just felt weak. Um, I don't know, obviously, to what extent that was because he'd blown so much money on Sean Connery that they mm. didn't quite have enough left for talent for the rest. But yeah, um, him as a, a villain, him the whole the whole setup for that film. I think the I think, plot as well let him down, but also yeah. appearing in drag, all that stuff. Just... Yeah, there was some again. There was some daft writing for it. Um, I mean, obviously, we well, we all we all know what our sort of collective opinion is on Diamonds of Forever and how that movie should have been. I think that's actually an argument for him being in among the worst villains because he's not the Blofeld that we were supposed to see. We should have seen the sort of angry, vengeful Blofeld 
from Honor Majesties, mm-hmm. yeah. who obviously is on this list as well. Um, obviously, that's who I think you nominated. Yeah. But I would rather he came back in Diamonds of Forever and had a chance to kind of um, justify and fight Bond. Mm-hmm. But we lost him, and what we got was this sort of bizarre camp comic version. So, yeah, I'm kind of with you yep. on okay. uh, on Charles yeah. Gray. Okay, so we've got two lock-ins, so all we need is to find the third, and between that's really between the, the Blofeld, played by Tela Savalas, Elliot Carver, and Silva. Um, for my money, it's a fight between Saval- uh, the Blofeld and Elliot Carver. Uh, I feel Silva just edges above them. I, I feel there was something different that he was going for that should be praised at, le- at least, but Obviously, Gordon, you're obviously not of that opinion. So it was one of your worst. Uh, what What's your thoughts on Elliot Carver? Uh, I think, well, I think Jonathan Price, if you see him in other films and see what he's like off stage, he um, he seems, he's one of these actors, he does an incredible job. I think that film of like stepping from normal Jonathan Price mode into act. Like he's he's just so different. He, sort of, he seems uh, just a very kind of, Cam, um, very ordinary guy, um, Jonathan Tracy is in real life, even in other films, but he, he kind of, he, he really does, I think, he's alright, I think he, he's, a, he's good from the megalomaniac point of view, I think, like Steve says, the plot's going a bit too far, it all comes into ratings and that, but I guess one thing that could be said for him is that that's what makes a true megalomaniac, someone that would go to extremes just over a, a, a very petty thing because they're so egotistical, they're so self-absorbed. I think they're maybe, again, trying to make him too much of a token Bond villain. He's got the black tunic, you know. Mm. He's kind of got, I think he's got a kind of mad look. This is kind of what I mean with like Jonathan Price stepping into like proper, a different mode playing Elliot Carver because like, I think Jonathan Price like, is more sort of like thinning hair in real life. I don't know if he, you know, given that kind of silver hair makes him kind of it kind of stands out but it looks kind of crazy the glasses as well but you know he lets himself down that silly eye the petty kind of karate imitation thing and he's just a bit too much hangs around the background get after them you know just um yeah. oh mr stamp will do my dirty work for me yeah. and it's like I, I just feel as well but carver like yeah so there's pluses but he doesn't feel like a genuine threat it's the same as like charles gray's blowfield the reason we've put him in there as well is probably because he doesn't he doesn't feel like a genuine threat he's too he's the likes of him is too friendly to bond um Alec carver you know he's maybe he's just maybe not threatening enough i think i still think he's above Raul silver and hmm. when you, you add all that together really uh the thing the, the scene that i remember for Alec carver that's one of the i mean i'd have mixed feelings on him certainly i remember when i watched it as a kid i did not like it. i did not like him and Tomorrow Never Dies, I liked a lot of the film, but I didn't like him, because again, I was GoldenEye fanboy, and I just wanted Trevelyan, or somebody like him, <laughs> and I just seen this guy, I was like, what? This isn't that, but the scene I think of when uh, it's it's so Austin Powers, it's that speech he's given to the to the to all these different editors and subordinates on the big screen, and then the camera zooms in as he says it, and he says, there's no news! like bad news and he does this little finger thing it's like literally like austin powers and that came out the same year the first austin powers film which um obviously affected how bond started becoming that's why yeah um 
but it's oh, hard that. to take serious. It's so hammy. Sorry, I'll let you finish. Oh, no, sorry uh, if you're... No, that was me. I was just saying it was just so yeah. hammy. Just for me. Yeah, there is a, a, a sense of that with, with Carver, yeah. Um, I, I think there, there's also for any... If we look at the essence of a, a Bond villain, it's also the lines that they have. I guess you could put that down to screenwriting, but I guess you could put their very existence in the film down to screenwriting or casting. But yeah, the Carver has some good lines. I mean, there's no news like bad news. That's a pretty good line. Um, let the mayhem begin. You know, um, it's the, I mean, yeah, it's a fine, it's a fair enough line, but it's maybe how it's delivered. Then I think I mean, he, it's the big zoom in. It's like the kind of, it's like as if it's made for a trailer. You know, like. It feels like it would have been the big, I don't know, trailer line that they use. Uh, yeah. The likes of him, though, there was at least, like, there was reasoning behind how he made things happening and the, the kind of technological side, how he made things happen. Like, obviously, making the, the HMS Devonshire sink, you can see clearly the whole chain of that. He's sending commands to Stamper. Stamper's sending commands to, to the men with the headsets on and the people that are controlling the little... It's like the little kind of robotic... Um, thing that that it's like a almost like a razor going into the hull of the ship. To you know, you can see the whole chain of how we know we know. For example, like um, Carver sits in the background and sends commands, on, but you can at least see that's happening with the likes of Silver. He's not even doing that. Silver's just like clicking his fingers and conjuring things out out of the air. Yeah, the thing about Silver is it doesn't does it go into a lot of detail about how he got so many people to work for him and things like that? Like he just has this yeah. kind of militia of people or I don't know. Uh, yeah, because at least with Carver, I mean, I mean it's, it's like there's a backstory too because he, in his scene with his wife after Bond's wrecked his whole launch night of the, the, the new news thing and he he says, oh, when I was a boy I worked for this rag of a local newspaper and it's learn, you learn a bit about how he became angry at the world and as, as far-fetched as it is there's at least a backstory i don't know silver's got a backstory it's like fair enough he was an agent but then again it's like there, there's got to be something really terrible happening in your life for you to go to working for a majesty's government to wanting to to be an enemy of a majesty's government and you know be a terrorist towards the country it's similar to the likes of al trevelyan you know maybe like the likes of his reasoning for just switching it's not like me saying like you know I, I'm a I'm a West Brom fan. But I'm suddenly going to convert to becoming an Aston Villa fan. You know, it's like <laughs> it, yeah, it's like taking everything. It's like everything that you've worked for. You you work for a Majesty's government. Um, you're steeped in that. That's your upbringing. Um, you're you want to eliminate any threat to your country because you're a patriot. You're proud of your country, but then you suddenly want to become a terrorist. Like, as en- essentially, Sylvan Yanis both did that. You know, it's you know, there's there's. How do you just switch like that? I mean, I know we're in the James Bond world, but if we're getting into the nitty gritty of it, it's a bit. So, what you was know, Silver's reasoning then? Was it the the mission that he essentially was given a cyanide pill, obviously to take if he needed to use it, because obviously there was no way out or whatever, and then obviously it didn't actually kill him and it burned half his face. Oh, that's gonna was that not what happened? Yeah. To him? That was my reading of it. Yeah, he's kind of he's, he's angry because his cyanide didn't work. Mm. I suppose yes, it's probably sir. also a kind of um, feeling as though he was kind of ten, uh, left to fend for himself, kind of abandoned. Yeah, by M. Element to it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's more like he's angry at M, so he just wants to become a, a terrorist and disable the, you know, was it the sort of like the. The British Secret Service, but uh, maybe I'm missing some because I mean, Skyfall's not a film I'm overly familiar with. But yeah, again, 
if you're, you know, I guess you could level similar things to Alec Trevelyan, like because he was angry. Trevelyan had had more of a motivation. It was like the whole, the entire, um, the entire British government betrayed him and his family. There's maybe you can maybe understand things still been raw for him like decades later, but with Silva's more like a thing between him and M rather than him and the whole the whole government. Yeah. Or maybe maybe to him, maybe to him like M is M is the the government. You know, he she's she kind of stands for everything that the the government stands for. With Trevelyan, they don't go into a lot of detail on it. Essentially it's just that exchange between you know, you find out from Sikorsky what uh what the Leans Cossacks were and then that he's one and things like that and then it comes up between Bond and him in the Statue Park scene. Um, you don't know. I mean, it sounds like, in my head, Trevelyan was premeditated in the sense that he knew, maybe, as he was being trained by the government, that he may turn against them because it was never forgotten what had happened and he just waited till he was fully trained. Again, that's me making headcanon to trying to make up what happened because the film doesn't ever give you that explanation. Um, mm. So you don't know, but Right, the last one we haven't spoke about is the other Blofeld performance um, by Telus Avalis. I nominated this one. Um, I don't think it's as bad as Charles Gray, and I'm trying to work out if it's and it's. So it would be for me, it'd be the runner-up of the three. It's just because I don't feel that there is that menace, there is that real threat to him. Yeah, it didn't work for me. I don't know how you guys feel. If I'm just an outlier here, is there any support for that or? Is there? A, what do you guys think? Hmm, maybe, maybe he didn't have the menace of of Donald Plenty's Blofeld. He um, he was let down by a again a bit of a thin plot. I think that's what I was thinking. Yeah, it's I don't know if it's him or the plot that's because yeah. I mean the plot is the background plot absolutely is ridiculous. Daft. Yeah, utterly. Um, yeah, I think as well. I, well, he had. It wasn't. He was kind of backed up by Armbar Boon. I mean, the thing is, a lot of us forget. I'm guilty of this. That if we talk about Bond, should have been properly vengeful and Blofeld in the next film. It it was actually Armbar Boon who pulled the trigger. So it was really Armbar Boon who killed Bond's wife. You know, so he was a lot of what he did. He he was he was supported by a very strong, you know, villain or like I suppose henchman with Armbar Boon. So he wasn't, you know. He would maybe like she kind of saved him to an extent. Yeah, I mean, that would be in the end. Blofeld is making the calls; it's all under his orders. Yeah, it's it just didn't work for me somehow. I, I, it's there's not maybe enough of great dialogue or scenes that I can recall that I I enjoyed. Um, from an image and character point of view, it didn't didn't work for me either. Uh, uh, I think Telly Savalas. I've seen him in a few things, and he's—I think he's a better actor portraying heroes rather than villains. Yeah, he's—he's he's most known for Kojak, which is—he's he's a really kind of affable chief of police, and he's—he plays a good ally in the the original Cape Fear film, a private detective. I think that's where Savalas excels. Yeah, he's usually a big character, isn't he? A loudmouth type. Um... So it it seems actually a bit strange that they cast him for this. Um, Would you agree? He's probably. I still think he's he's streets ahead of Charles Gray's Glowfield. If oh, we're looking at the I I mean, yeah, yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think he's he's got a physical presence, and you got. To, I think if, uh, probably again not having read all the Fleming books, but 
I think Fleming's creation of Blofeld, he was a big guy, he was physical, like he could fight. And right. Savalas, I think, is the only Blofeld that properly does that. He was, and he was tall as well. Like, Taylor Savalas is a big guy. Blofeld was meant to be tall in the books. He wasn't meant to be a small guy like Donald Pleasance was. Actually, maybe that's a shout. That might win me over then. Um, I'm, you know, you forget that the, the Peter Hunt and, the, and the, the, the director for the film, he did strongly follow the book and he went with what um, Fleming had written on the page. So I that makes sense why they cast that. They were trying something new. Obviously, it didn't really follow through and they didn't keep that going. It was an experiment as such we can look back on. But I, yeah, I, I can let that go then on that basis. So I'm, Yeah, I'm, I would have... Sorry, Steve. I was just going to say he he um he might have saved diamonds or forever if he was in that and played a stronger Blofeld. Because I, I feel that um yeah the likes of Charles Charles Gray, but he because he was Charles Gray was perfect as Henderson. He's another actor I think is better at portraying a, an ally rather than a villain. But he he just didn't seem menacing at all as Blofeld. And at least Savalas did seem somewhat menacing. I think Charles Gray. I might even one of these things. It seems as though he might have just been a an associate of the Broccoli, so it was maybe like a cheap and easy decision to hire him. And I don't know the reason behind Savalas not continuing, because I know the reason for Elsa Steppet not continuing as Armaboon. The reason they essentially didn't do anything with her character was because Elsa Steppet died shortly after the film came out. I don't know the reasoning behind. I would have liked to see mm. if it really would have saved Dimes if it ever having Savalas's Blofeld in it. At least you'd have that continue to that. See, that's what that's one of the biggest letdowns of the whole franchise for me is the the lack of continuity in Bond at times, you know, and you know, not I mean, it's the fact that the Blofeld trilogy that people talk about is really you only live twice uh on Her Majesty's and Diamonds. And you've got in that that this is the problem, man. You've got three different actors playing Blofeld in each of those trilogy of films. Not to mention a you know, two different actors playing Bond, but one of them coming back. But it's hard to really have that appreciation and on that, you know like i prefer the unofficial i'm calling it the unofficial blofeld trilogy of the films before that that feature blofeld and voice yeah. and hand only stroking a cat i actually feel that version of blofeld is in some ways the best version the mystery of the character is so much yeah. more interesting than the reveal because donald pleasant had an interesting look but he was a small guy he did have a kind of weak sounding voice uh, it's the bond, and um, I just yeah, I, I think they've, they did, none of them really hit the the way built up and, and met that sort of that kind of like impact that had been set up from the three films before. So yeah, okay, I've cut Blofeld, uh, this Telly Savalas performance from this list. So we're talking really to get the final one on this list between Elliot Carver and Silva. Gordon, you're obviously pushing for Silva. Steve, you're obviously going for Carver. I'm a, and I'm trying to decide where I sit with this. Oh, it's tough because this is where a four might have helped because this is where yeah. this comes down to. Uh, I think if Fran was here, he would have stuck up for Silver. So Silver's probably not truly meant to be there. Yeah, I think definitely Fran would have went for Silver over Elliot Carver as a non-worst. Because um, I wouldn't even, again, it's one of these things that I, I kind of think there's merits with just about all of them, you know. I think there's a lot of positive things about Silva. So, you know, I don't I don't think he's an absolute shoo-in in the grand scheme of things really. Mm-hmm. We we know what ones we all like don't really don't like. 
mm-hmm. so much. But they're not. But like I said, they've all got merit. So like, rather than worse, it's just to me, it's like least favorable ones. Yeah, like, I mean, even I can see the the benefits. I suppose with Elliot Carver, he does make. He's a good sort of Loki psychopathic megalomaniac. Not Loki maniac. The megalomaniac that doesn't make any sense. But sort of. He's a good megalomaniac. He's got that kind of psychopathic quality in that he's willing to bring the world to the brink of nuclear war. Yeah. But it was, I think, the way... Something about... I mean, his, as I've mentioned, his improvisation wasn't great. I don't particularly like how he was written, and I don't like his plot, which I think is why he's kind of up there for me. Yeah. But let it be said, Elliot Carver kills his own wife. He's that... He's that much of a megalomaniac, he would actually kill his own wife. So that yeah. yeah, he is that that is a sign of a psychopath, yes. Uh, to kind of get and he doesn't even he seems to do it in a whim as well. It's like as soon as Gupta reveals the, the audio recording of Bond, you can tell like Bond and her know each other. As soon as Gupta shows that to him, he's like, I think we need to arrange an appointment with the doctor, meaning obviously Dr. Kaufman to go and kill her. You know, it's like he doesn't even need to give it a second's thought. He's like, nah, that's it. Mm. Have her killed. Yeah. That is a true megalomaniac, but, just for that bit there. What about death scenes? I feel like Carver's is not great. The whole That's like, a good point, Steve. Because I think for any of the villains, like I can't kind of to make them memorable. I think they need do you feel like maybe they need to have a, an iconic death scene as well? Yeah, I mean, one of the worst that... things about Mr. Biggs is his death scene. I was going to say that. <laughs> like, it exactly, because he's big... so good. Huh? Yeah, I think he's one of the best villains they've had, but his death scene is fucking horrendous. Carver's it's... is not great. The whole protracted, like, one, to t- it's like two-liner, really. I mean, Bond grabs him, he starts the one-liner, you know, give the people what they want, and then that thing's coming towards him. There's something about it that just seems... <laughs> Yeah. I don't know. It didn't didn't really work for me. You forgot the last rule of mass media. <laughs> I would say though, it's kind of good how Carver's killed by his own thing—the very thing that he used to almost start World War Three. But you know, the little sort of like buzzsaw um, submarine—it actually kills him. So he's like killed by his own product. It's kind of similar to how, in a kind of long-winded way. Um, Isn't that Fran Sanchez is killed by his own drugs? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, though, if you look at most of the villains, in some ways, that's nearly how they all die. They always usually end up dying in some form. Like, there's always an irony there. Yeah, yeah like how did the Scaramanga get killed? No, he just he doesn't get killed by the golden gun, does he? He just gets killed. That's, by... But that's yeah. yeah. I, I suppose yeah, I doesn't. It didn't really need to be though, because it was with him. It was just. It was the perfect thing for he thought he was unbeatable mm-hmm. and Bond got the better of him by using his wits. Yeah. So there's, yeah, I mean that's a classic example, Steve. Uh, yeah, um, uh, Silva's death, uh, does he, how does that one go again? Well, for me, it's like, I can't even remember, so that's if something's not memorable, you don't remember it, so I guess I don't remember that one. I remember he didn't how, how seem does he too phased by it, I, remember, I can't remember, it was under um, the field with the, the shooter. He gets... Stabbed in the back, doesn't he? I think that's, that's right. Yeah, thing. yeah. Is that in Skyfalls in the house? Yeah, or in the church nearby. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. You're right. It's, I think because it happens so close to M's death, it's completely overshadowed because that's what everyone remembers. Mm. One of the, you know, we mentioned before the podcast, Steve, about um, we Steve was telling you about. Never say never again. I mean, that was like Maximilian Largo. His death was so unmemorable. It was just like, oh, quick harpoon. It's like blinking, you'll miss it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm struggling. I, I feel like Carver just edges into the category of the weakest, but it is very tight. You've made a really strong argument for Silver, Gordon, that I was I'm very close to, to giving it. Uh, I think I, because I can imagine Fran shouting through the, the thing, I can imagine him saying that Silver would be off the list and is better than that. I think we're I'll, I would say Carver makes it as a runner-up. I don't think he's going to win this category, the fact it's taken so long to get to him on the list. So I would say we've got our three, if you guys are okay with that. Yeah. I think you might be right, yeah. So I would say at least, like I said, though, Silva does make me feel uncomfortable, but I don't think Carver really makes me feel properly uncomfortable, and I think he ought to. I wonder if it's something to do with there's a bit more dimensions maybe to Silver or a bit more like I don't know. I I don't feel we get to really Carver might be is a bit too cartoon like in a way, maybe. Yeah. That it was was played a bit kinda of daft. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's something Which... about maybe it's the tone of that film, things like that. By Skyfall they had sort of sort of made it more serious, but Silva brought that slight zaniness to it in this in the sort of serious world, but it, for me that worked just right. Okay, uh, fair play, Gordon. You've made a good argument for Silva. He is the the one that just missed the category, so it's um, you know that 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 says something. But we now have our three, and let's find let's pick our winner. I think obviously it comes down to the Charles Gray Blofeld performance or Gustav Graves. I have no idea where to start. If somebody, if someone else want to make a case for one of them, they are both pretty poor for my uh, thinking. I don't know where, so I'm willing to hear an argument. I think I'm going to put my side down on Gustav Graves being, and I, I, I mean, I will be honest. I don't know if it's because I found the film itself so bad, but I just, I don't, I find, I just, I think the fight, the fact that I found him. I found him smug and annoying. It's kind of not what you want from a film character. You look at him and you just think, oh, God, what a dick. With a villain, you kind of want to either sort of feel a bit of respect for them or just feel an utter hatred for them. That is, I think, the sign of a good villain. When you look at them and just think, oh, you're a wee twat, then it's <laughs> sort of, it's it's less, it just similar to how I felt with Elliot Carver, it's, I just find there's no, I don't have any, any sort of respect or hatred for them. They just they kind of fall down that kind of crack in the middle of just being a bit rubbish. And I mean, as I just pointed out, he's he doesn't he okay yes he can he's a relatively good sword fighter, but beyond that he's just a rich man with some toys and some people at his disposal. He spends money effectively to try and um, take Bond down rather than doing what villains should do. And kind of fighting. Yeah, Gordon, what about you? Jesus Christ, this is a tough one. <laughs> they're they're both really not favourites of mine. Yeah, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know how you compare it. The uh, the exaggerated um, superhero style of of Gustav Graves, or the or the camp overly friendly, overly charming style of Graves Blofeld. Uh, I I think, I think yeah. I'll let you finish on your Blofeld's well, Blofeld's creepier, um, makes me feel more uncomfortable. But with uh, I guess with Gustav Graves, I'm just like, ah, you know, just there's two. It's such a huge letdown. It's like having two characters merged into one with him. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, sh- 
I forgot about the whole Charles Gray's Blofeld capturing Bond. You know, that really annoying thing of rather than just taking him on or killing him, giving him a tour of the property. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's not just that. Uh, is a ridiculous element to a villain. And it's not just that. Stevie says after this is this is absolutely ridiculous and this is this is maybe me over analyzing things again, but Bond, see up to that point, Bond had um Blofeld should have been bloody familiar with Bond. He'd been dealing with them since pretty much Doctor No from Rush with Love, right? He knows Bond's pretty much the hardest guy in the world to kill. And he's he's tried absolutely everything. He's tried to get people to do the job for him, like Largo and and all these people, Rosa Klebb. He knows how Bond operates. He's you know, he's like he's been face to face with Bond. And then at the end of that film, he says when the after he's given him the tour of the tour of the oil rig, he says Take him, throw throw him in the brink. He says so, like just he get, puts him in that little room at the bottom of the oil rig. He's like just let put him in there. It's like you know, come on. I mean, we we know we know the essence of the Bond villain is to like toy with Bond and kill him in the most elaborate way. But he's not even doing. It's just like he's not even going to kill Bond. I mean, what does he think is going to happen if he puts Bond <laughs> in a room which actually has a bottomless <laughs> floor? There's no floor there. He, he's, what does he think Bond's going to do? At worst, he's maybe going to jump in the ocean and he might actually survive it. You know? Yeah, I, the, the, you've touched on something that made me realise why I think I would I would go for Blofeld in this instance. Now, however, I do recognise Gustav Graves is awful and so close to getting it. For me, there is not just a poor villain here, but it's actually the, the disappointment of the setup of the previous films. That is where, as much as I, I would, I nominated Savalas for what I don't think was a great performance, and even there's elements of the pleasant performance that don't quite match up. There is still something to be salvaged from a great Blofeld performance and character and story and everything because of all of the films prior. So now you have the what killed the whole thing. They just killed it. The idea of Blofeld was ruined by this point because yeah. of that performance, that story, everything about Diamonds killed that whole thing. And it was a complete. It was like a slap in the face to every, if you'd been reading the books and the Blofeld was built up in the books. It's kind of like swatting that to the side, isn't yeah. it? I think, and that's so that why I would edge above Gustav Graves because as much as 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 a terrible character, a terrible villain. It's in a surrounding film that is poor in many other ways, but it's one film, and as much as, yes, it's the the 20th of the, the franchise, it felt it was trying to be celebratory and tried to have kind of um, sort of little nods to all the films prior and all this kind of stuff. It was still a poor film, lots of poor CG, all these kind of things we spoke about. So that's one poor villain in that film, but there was no, like, sort of setup to that it's just the one film you get over it it actually you can mercifully say it then led us to casino royale which is one of the best films because of that a weird way to look at it but there's something about the blowfeld just being ruined that it kills off any of the that's the mystery of the character that had been set up over six six prior films almost well not counting goldfinger yeah you look at the way he started as well, and from Rush with Love, seeing like you didn't see his face. Obviously, he just seemed super menacing. You didn't have to see his face. You know that was one of the strengths. So it's yeah, from that. I mean, that could edge this Blofeld because he's you know it's it's undoing so much good work. Yeah, so much good work. I would you know? say so. And it's I think though him him and Gustav Graves they 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 go out and kind of piss poor ways. I mean the 
the Blofeld thing, he, well, it's kind of good in that they, they have it kind of open-ended so you don't actually see him dying, but it's like, there's again, they, they do that unnecessary comedy in Dimes Are Forever because he goes in his little mini submarine trying to get away, which is like, it's just so silly and cartoonish, right? And then and Bond's like messing about with the crane and he's like, not upwards, downwards and all that. He's like telling him, he's going mad at the because he thinks he's talking to his technician on the other side. It's just, it's so like over comical and unnecessary. And then, it's, you know, his, his base is an oil rig, which is pretty boring. And then you look at Gustav Gaze, I mean, how does he go out? I mean, the, it's like one of the worst examples of CGI in the film. And Bond, all Bond has to do is like pull a little catch in his big Robocop suit and he goes flying out. And he just, it just happens to like go, rather than go into thin air, he just happens to go into the, the propeller of the aircraft. Yeah. It's just, it's just poor for both of them. Yep. Steve, what's your final I'm, thoughts? You, where are you sitting with Yeah, it? I am convinced actually. I think obviously Blofeld and Gustav Graves are both examples of the Bond franchise deserving better. But Charles Gray's Blofeld, as we've established, is basically a dismantling of a character that's been built up and built up over six films and should have been fantastic. But, they went and ruined it in Diamonds of Forever, so I'm now actually convinced okay. entirely of um, Charles Gray's Blofeld coming out top in this one. Excellent. We have our winner of the category. Charles Gray's Blofeld is the weakest of the Bond villains, our least favourite in the franchise, followed up by the two runners-up, Elliot Carver and Gustav Graves. Uh, yeah, thanks guys for slogging through this one with me. We're able to get there. Uh, we have now got our worst villains and we will be back to discuss our best villains. Join us for that one. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>